Welcome to the Spiritual Sexual Shamanic Podcast. Tune in as we explore all things sexuality, transformation, relationships, and freedom with ISTA faculty and experts from around the world. I'm your host, Simon Marvell, faculty with ISTA. Welcome to today's episode. I would have to say we're in the fifth season now, and by far, this is the most exciting conversation I'm going to have because (laughs) I've got Dr. Jen Hawk on with us today. And to be straight with you, I'm such a fangirl. Aw, that's really sweet. I'm such a fangirl. You've totally like changed my life. I've been listening to your podcast for almost six years now. And I haven't even been on it that long. (laughs) (laughs) So you must have been listening to it before I came on with just Doug. Yeah, that's right. I've been listening to it since 2017 and it was brain breaking. And then when Mm -hmm. you came on, you totally helped balance the the masculine voice. (laughs) It was the sausage party. (laughs) That's right. It's so good. So for those of you who don't know Dr. Jen. Wait to be wowed. Dr. Jen is an author, researcher, and interdisciplinary social scientist specializing in evolutionary psychology coaching. I've done sessions myself. It's so good. She is a refugee from academia, has a PhD in political science and social science, but instead of academia, has created a career outside of that. Welcome. Uh, oh, well, it's so good to be here. What a sweet introduction. You've, you've, get, you've sent me right into what we call the ego trap, which is where <laughs> you know the external world has high expectations of you that you're not sure you can meet. So I would just like to lower everybody's expectations. Like, it's just a conversation. We're just chilling out. We're just two girls having a having a little chat today. So That's right. Yeah. Absolutely. Very- yes. I did not mean to bring in the ego trap. Oh, this is such a good one. <laughs> the, ego, the ego trap is always at the gates. It's a huge like component of a lot of what drives our avoidance and procrastination and just, you know, an inability to kind of be our full selves in the world. So we can get into that if it makes sense in the conversation. Absolutely. Yes. Well, today's topic, just a little light stuff like cancel culture <laughs> and groupthink, peer pressure, and the distinction between cults and schools, which there's no one else really um, who I'm interested in understanding because there's a way in which you share your thought process, your thinking, and the way you put language together that Mm -hmm. provides an opportunity to think outside the box in a way or really actually go into the box in a way that is deeper and more understanding. Mm. Yeah. Um, because, you know, for for those of us who are familiar with ISTA, and I imagine you're not familiar, we're a school, we're a mystery school. So we yeah. really appreciate the mystery and the more esoteric, mystical teachings while also embracing and honoring the matter, physical body, s- sexuality, spirituality, and even mm-hmm. shamanism. So... Mm-hmm. Cool. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Let's jump right into it. Jump right in. Let's jump right All in. Right. All right. So, Dr. Jen, how might an understanding of evolutionary psychology help us comprehend the roots of contemporary phenomena like cancel culture? 
Yeah, that is a big question. Um, so just to kind of ground people in what we mean by evolutionary psychology is always a define your terms situation. And I, you know, I'm not a psychologist. I'm, I've come to evolutionary psychology as a, a just a curious consumer, as somebody who was trying to understand the behavior of groups of people, uh, of individuals, of state actors when I was writing my dissertation. So my my dissertation to finish my PhD in political science was about um, Alaska Native groups and their relationship with the, the state, um, the state defined as the state of Alaska, also the federal government. Um, and I kind of, when I was doing that research, was hitting this wall because the tools available within the academic uh, world of political science were just not getting it done for me. They weren't. They weren't making sense of the puzzle that I was facing, which was sort of why this persistent vulnerability and why are people so uh, struggling so much in in these populations, despite sort of um, a lot of assistance from the state. You know, a big big kind of welfare effort to to bring people up, and it seemed almost as if the more assistance they got from the state, the more impoverished they became, the less empowered they were. Um, and so I just started to put this observation together and I was trying to make sense of it. And, you know, it's, uh, it just kind of led me among other resources into what is broadly defined as evolutionary psychology. So evolutionary psychology is just a branch of psychology, a relatively new one, one that emerged probably as recently as the 1990s from um, a small group of scholars who were working at the time, that rather than look at psychological issues and dilemmas and conflicts from a kind of traditional Freudian or Jungian perspective or these kinds of things, this like, tell me about your mother, you know, <laughs> like lie down on the couch and tell me about your childhood and everything that's wrong. It takes evolutionary insights from evolutionary biology and, and says, hey, why, why are we assuming that uh, natural selection and sexual selection sort of stop at the, at the neck, that they don't have effects on the brain and ways that we build our relationships and find meaning in the world and um, think about in-groups and out-groups, and that will take us into this cancel culture question, um, but, but also uh, you find status, find meaning, uh, pursue certain relationships and not others. Uh, why are we not looking at human problems through that lens at all? And so these, these original academics who started working in this space um, started pioneering this idea and had remarkable insights. And, and I had come across some of these very early, uh, even just as a teenager or young person, uh, kind of things like, well, why do women wear makeup? You know, it seems like a pretty obvious question. Well, they want to look pretty, you know, why do they want to look pretty and why do they want to look pretty in a specific way? And one of the original insights that I read that rocked my world, that, like our podcast has rocked yours, was I think in The Moral Animal, Robert Wright says, well, women are wearing makeup to mimic sexual arousal. That's why they have pink cheeks and big eyes and red lips. And so that's, that is more attractive than some other kind of, you know, when women wear crazy makeup like blue lipstick or, you know, some sort of crazy uh, arrangement with the fake eyelashes or something. It can be very interesting looking, but it's not usually a sexual ornament like it is when they do a sort of more, the more conventional approach. Um, and so it's all advertisement. It's all advertisement for potential mates. So these are the kind of things that you start, you start getting into it, and it's it's like, oh man, this is this is making a lot of sense. This is uh, my my co-author and collaborator, Dr. Doug Lyle, who also is the we co-host the podcast Beat Your Genes together. Um, he was on it, as we said, for years before I came on. 
And he really is a, an actual clinical psychologist, and he has really uh, been a, a founding presence in this space clinically. I don't think there's any other full-time clinical evolutionary psychologist out there who is who is working like he is. And so most of what I've learned, I've, I've learned from him or come up with in collaboration with him. Um, and so, you know, you just, you, you hear these things and you start to put it together and it starts to make sense of the world. And we call this source code. It's like you trip across the source code of how things work. And I have a very... I see evolutionary psychology as a tool among many tools. It's 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 not the end all be all for me because I'm a bit of an outlier in the evolutionary psychology world because I do have a strong mystical presence and grounding and interest and <laughs> like I see I have feet in both worlds where most evolutionary psychologist people that you're going to run into whether they're psychologists or academics um, are atheists, they're hyper rationalists, they 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 kind of are seeing the seeing humans as just a bunch of animals optimizing their circumstances and then they die and then it's the void. <laughs> and so I don't I don't really relate to that perspective, but I do I I see evolution as this incredible lens through which to understand human behavior and group behavior. So all of that is preamble to get into the the essence of your question here, like how can it help us understand something like cancel culture? Well, what's going on with cancel culture? We're 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 saying I'm an in-group, you're an out-group, you, you're, you're, you don't deserve to exist. This is a tale as old as time in human society. The, the sort of incentive and motivation for us to have in-groups and out-groups can, can date back to our earliest collaborative living in a, in a Stone Age village setting where this was life or death. If, if you had some sort of outsider come into your tight-knit little community that you had spent your entire existence with from cradle to grave and everybody knows everybody and everybody knows everything about everybody, what do you do with somebody who tries to be an interloper into that? You're going to be very, very, very suspicious. Um, and there's a very high potential cost to allowing them into your world to uh, possibly change things, to possibly change things against your own self-interest. So we have this very this instinct for in-group, out-group behavior. Um, and we live in a modern world that denies that that instinct exists. Um, this is what Steven Pinker calls the blank slate world. This idea that all of this is just learned, that we learn all of our, uh, you know, whether it's racism or sexism or any any kind of ism, um, that this is just something that we've culturally picked up rather than something that is that is built into us as suspicion of people who are different from us, look different from us, act different from us, believe differently from us. And so I see cancel culture just as sort of a a hyper-activated runaway process of that instinct where you hand a bunch of souped-up chimpanzees like social media and the ability to punitively censor and kick each other out of the tribe when things go awry or when they disagree. Um, and so it's a, it's just a power struggle for, for status and dominance. Um, and in that sense, we really are very animalistic and that we try to put this veneer on it as if it's all, uh, you know, above that and, and something much fancier than that. When, when really we're just trying to grab all the stuff for ourselves and, and keep other people out. So. so good. Oh, I'm so into this. <laughs> There's something extraordinarily liberating, mm. which is which seems almost counterintuitive, but it's like, wow, you know, I'm born into 
pre-existing biological programming. Right. And it doesn't right. necessarily, a weird way to say it, like make me who I am. Like I, I can technically sort of exist right. outside of my biology, even though my biology is dictating my reality. Yeah. 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 It's not, it's not destiny. Right. So it's, I, I think, again, this is kind of where I sit apart from the rest of the, the evolutionary psychology boys. They, they are mostly boys. I think there is a lot of kind of uh, deterministic thinking am- among the EP culture um, that, you know, genes are destiny, biology is destiny. Um, the analogy that I always use for, for a lot of things, it doesn't apply to everything. There are things that are destiny for sure. Like the, the fact that we have a biological instinct for in-group, out-group, that's not something that we can change. Like we're, we're always going to have that. Um, but we can, we can work with these things and we can, uh, overcome our worst tendencies. So these tendencies that, uh, look to sanction others, look to consolidate status, look to, uh, you know, save face in a relationship at the expense of open and, and tr- truthful communication with somebody, all of these instincts that we have, they're, they're real, they're profound, and that we come by them uh, very honestly through our process of natural and sexual selection as a species. But um, this is why we call our podcast Beat Your Genes, because <laughs> your genes are trying to get you to do certain things to be a successful animal. And successful from an evolutionary perspective is just you're you're going to get your DNA into the next generation. You're going to survive, first and foremost, you got to survive, and you're going to reproduce. You're going you're gonna to attract mates and you're going to have babies. Um, and what that looks like as an incentive process for men and women is, is different, and we can get into that. But, um, but that is the prime directive of, of being alive, whether you're a human or uh, a mushroom, <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, it's always the same. So, but for us, you know, humans are a very uh, different sort of animal. We, we have, because of this mystical piece, there is this essential component of the human soul that transcends biology to some degree, at least I believe that that is true. And, you know, this, of course, I can hear the empiricists crying about this now, like, there's no evidence for this. What are you talking about? We're just animals like every other animal. Um, And a big crucible of that conversation is around free will. A lot of people in the EP space, the evolutionary biology space, believe that there's no such thing as free will. Um, and I understand the case for that, that, that people will make for that. Um, but it, it just, that is not something that rings true to me at, at an esoteric and, and fundamental level. So this idea of, well, do we have free will and what is it for and how is it implemented and and I, I contend if it does exist, then it has to exist in order to somehow transcend these instincts, um, to, to be present with them, to observe them happening in real time, and to make a different choice that uh, optimizes our life differently than what our genes would have us do, um, which is just to survive and reproduce. The genes don't care if you're happy. They don't care if your relationships are functional. <laughs> they don't care. They, all, they just want you to survive and reproduce, even if that means lying to everybody around you and manipulating people around you and being super deceptive and, um, you know, just leaving a wake of carnage behind you as long as you are successful. That's all that matters from a, from a sort of genetic reproduction perspective. But I think there's more to human life than that. Yes. That was one of the biggest insights and ahas I got is the the selfish gene. 
and, yeah. and understanding that it's like, wow, I'm driven by this instinct. There's like this compulsion mm. on a biological, physical level that mm. doesn't care about my happiness or well-being or those of the people around me. It's it's this competitive biological yep. drive. Yeah. 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 Your happiness, other people's happiness, all of that is just collateral damage for (laughs) like rule number one, survive and reproduce. So, so insightful, so helpful to then with that basis, it's like, then I can work with it in a way. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's, it's like everything else. It's, you know, observation and mindfulness is the first step. You, you can't uh, attempt to transform anything until you really understand it and you really see your role in it. And so becoming aware of watching those instincts in yourself, watching the urge that you have yourself to possibly cancel somebody. Um, you know, I think one of the things that we are really collect- collectively in denial about is, and, and I have watched this just on my social media feed recently, where, you know, people are sort of, they will seem like they're your in-group around a certain issue, and then another issue comes across the news, the, this, the, the issue of the day, and the alignment shift, and, and suddenly you see them pursuing their self-interest Interest, and now you're on the out, outside looking in. You're no longer like their coalition. You know, you're, you're now you have a major disagreement about something. And I think that that's just it's just humans being human, and you know, pursuing what makes the most sense in the most expedient way possible. We have this guide for human behavior that we call the motivational triad, which is everything that motivates you or everything that you're motivated to do comes down to a dance between three different factors. You're all things equal. You want to avoid pain. You want to seek pleasure, and you want to do both of those things with at, at the minimum amount of effort possible. So you want to conserve energy. So you want to get the most pleasure, the least pain, with the least effort. Um, and that is governing everything that we're up to all of the time. So it really takes a lot of uh, self honesty and interrogation to, to see how you're being pulled along by these instincts and by these compulsions, um, whether it is, um, your, your, your inability to back down during a conflict with a boss that you hate, you know, or, um, the, the fact that you're afraid to be honest in your relationship about something that you really need to bring up or all of these things that are your, your, the selfish gene as Richard Dawkins puts it is saying, nope, 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 don't do that. Or, or yes, 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 do that because this is going to advance your survival and reproduction interests, but at the expense of just a more, a more complex and and more integrated life that ideally we all want to be creating for ourselves. So mindfulness, examination, brutal self-honesty, <laughs> I, these, these things are all part of the process of coming to know who you are and why you do what you do. And once you've established that, then there's, then there's an opportunity to transmute some of that. Yes. Whenever uh, my husband says, are you procrastinating? I, I clap back and say, I'm an energy conservationist. <laughs> <laughs> we're all, we're all procrastinators with procrastination. It's, I, I always, there's like, it's the wrong thing to do from an evolutionary perspective. If you have a task in front of you, that is like, if you're, if you're a kid in school and you have a paper that's due in two months, 
you're making a mistake if you go home and write that paper tonight because your school could get hit by an asteroid. COVID could cancel school for the rest of the year. Your teacher could have a heart attack and die and you've got a sub who doesn't care about the project. So it's absolutely the wrong thing from an evolutionary perspective. Again, if you're trying to maximize that motivational triad. Um, but it's also the wrong thing to do to wait until the night before it's due, right? Because then you've lost opportunities to do the best job that you possibly could. You're forfeiting any other opportunity that night that might be available to you that might be a better, maybe, maybe it's a choice between getting that paper done or that person that you wanted to go on a date with finally agreed to one. And now you, now you have to make this choice, which you didn't want to make. So, um, the truth is somewhere in between, but we're wired to procrastinate. Yes. It's so powerful. It's so good. All right. There's so much I want to ask you and talk about, obviously. Um, but to come back to what we started with, can evolutionary psychology provide insights into the tendency for some individuals to participate in canceling behaviors? Yeah, for sure. So we we talk a lot, uh, Doug and I do on the podcast and elsewhere about personality um, and about the big five as as it's known. So the big five personality characteristics, this is a way of understanding personality that really it was a factor model based on how we talk about people. So they these guys literally took all of the adjectives that we use to describe other people and they factored them down into five categories. Um, and so if I say someone is uh, sweet and they're friendly, both of those things get factored into the category of how agreeable they are. So agreeableness is one of the big five. I'll actually, let me spell them out in the acronym so people can remember it. They spell ocean. So how open to experience are you? That's the, that's the O. How conscientious are you? How extroverted are you? How agreeable are you? And how neurotic are you? So these are, these are kind of the five big things that really define our, our personality as we move through the world. And again, this is all with the caveat, at least from my perspective, that this is not, uh, you know, this fixed sort of destiny. It's just very strong tendencies that you have within your personality. So we, it's not strictly evolutionary psychology. This comes from a, a realm of research called behavioral analytics or behavioral genetics. Um, and, uh, but we use this because it's grounded in biological truth. Um, and, uh, and, and they're very predictive. If you know somebody's big five, you can really predict a lot of things about, uh, what sort of life experiences they're likely to have and how, how they're likely to cope or not cope with certain types of adversity, et cetera. So when you're talking about something like are more any any question that says are some people more likely to do X than other people, it always comes down to personality. Um, and definitely, I mean, I think if you look around and see the people who are most vociferous about cancel culture, <laughs> the people who are really leading the charge, um, you're going to see disagreeableness. So you're going to see people who who are quite disagreeable. And disagreeableness is really a measure of uh, fairness. It's it's how where is your baseline for. Uh, interpreting whether you're getting a fair deal in life or not. So somebody who's who's wired just to be a little more disagreeable by nature, as as you are, <laughs> you're you're not extreme, but you're a little more. You're definitely more disagreeable than I am. I'm I'm way over on the agreeable side. So if somebody gives us um, 
a slice, like say, say you and I go out to, uh, you know, have cake together at a restaurant <laughs> and my slice is a little smaller. Like I'm not going to say anything. I'm not going to complain about it. It's not, it'll register a little with me, but if you got the smaller slice of cake and it was like your birthday and you really wanted that cake and it was the only cake you were going to let yourself have that week or whatever, all this, you're going to, you're going to squawk about it. You're going to say, Hey, this is unfair. My, my perception of fairness is I get 60%, you get 40%. (laughs) And my perception of fairness as a super agreeable person is, well, 40% is okay. You know, everyone else deserves more anyway. So this is a really fundamental way that you move through the world and perceive what is, what is just, what is fair? Um, you know, is it, is it worth taking action on something if you feel you're being chiseled out of something you deserve? So I think people who are out there on the front lines of cancel culture are by and large disagreeable. Um, and that's because I think the people who are on the front lines of the internet are by and large disagreeable. And there's actually studies on this. So, so people have looked at, um, this, this kind of, uh, I don't even know if they have a name for it, but the disagreeable effect that emerges on social media. Because if I go post something on Twitter and I immediately get a bunch of trolls coming at me um, saying mean things, I'm basically going to shrivel up and go back in my corner and shut down my account and never post again. Um, so what happens is that the the sort of social ecology of something like Twitter or other social media starts to select only for the people who fight back. So if somebody disagreeable posts something and they post something disagreeable and a bunch of shitheads come and say trolly things, well, now it's this flame war and now it becomes this whole thing. So over time, the entire environment of social media moves in the direction of disagreeable. It also moves in the direction of neurotic because neurotic people are more impulsive. So the the more impulsive you are, the less uh, sort of stability in your personality to second guess yourself to say hold on as Doug and I like to say we call it sleep on send don't send that email <laughs> don't send don't, like before you click the button sleep on it if it's a good idea today it will be a good idea tomorrow so i think you see a lot of impulsiveness through neuroticism you see a lot of disagreeableness um you probably also see a, a little bit of a lack of openness because open people are generally more tolerant of people who disagree with them um and of people who exist in the world who might represent a completely different understanding of how things are supposed to work. So those would be the main factors, I think, driving it. The the others probably interact as well. Um, But as I said a while ago, I do think this is something that exists in every human. I think even those of us who really consider ourselves totally above cancel culture, as soon as we find ourselves on the wrong side of an issue, um, or we find ourselves where there, there is an out group that is seems to pose a a clear and imminent danger to us, now we're very happy to cancel them. Um, And so recognizing that we all have that capacity and that even those that we would really like to vilify for being the bad guys who are out there doing the canceling, it's, it's always, from a spiritual perspective, so important to understand that Every everything is in us, you know. Um, as they say in twelve step, you spot it, you got it. <laughs> and so we all have this capacity, and and to delude ourselves into believing that we're too good for that is to make a big, big spiritual mistake. Absolutely, couldn't agree more. It's so fascinating. So then, what would you say is like the distinction between? Uh, if let's say I lean more disagreeable, 
and uh, neurotic. So I have this impulse and, and compulsion. And yet, if I see a group of people that I'm seeking status with, go in a direction that I actually disagree with, you know, personally for myself, but there's almost this like peer pressure or group thing happening. Would you then say that that's all for status, for coalition gaining? Yeah, we, we have another phrase. We're full of little pithy phrases (laughs) Um, because it helps. It helps to like really kind of have a little code book that you carry around to understand human nature. And one of those is if you don't understand something, look for status because that is, this makes sense if you really unpack it a little bit, because if you remember that our main priority as a, a human being that is alive on planet earth, like every other creature and organic entity that is alive on planet earth, survive first and then reproduce. And so status enters the chat because if you are uh, particularly not just with survival, but if you're high value, you're more likely to survive. You're more likely to be protected by other people, but especially with the reproductive piece, because the person with the most status gets the best mate. Um, and so if you have, if in this works differently for men and women, of course, but it, it's the, it's the same general principle, because if you are able to consolidate a lot of status, another word for this is just value. Um, you see this in the language that, you know, has emerged in the kind of incel community and the men going their own way community, the sexual mate value idea. Um, this is a, a, a just kind of rigorous analysis of what's actually going on out there, which is that we are assigning value. Of course you do. This this denial that we assign value to mates, to friends, to coworkers, it's just ridiculous that we live in this kind of denial. If you believe that that's true, then uh, why don't I just pair you up randomly via lottery from someone in the phone book to be your your life partner? Like people are not not going to go for that. I had a friend who was um, a more of a blank slate thinker than myself in this idea that, oh, you know, children are, uh, ha- the biology and the genes have nothing to do with who they become and uh, what their, you know, what their personality is. That's the other thing with the big five is, is this is, you know, primarily genetically driven. These are heritable characteristics. Um, so that's important to know about that. Uh, but she, um, she was looking for a donor, sperm donor, because she couldn't conceive the old fashioned way. And so she's going through these catalogs, looking at the biographies of the sperm donors. And it's like, well, if you're truly a blank slate thinker, then you should just like randomly choose one and be done with it. But no, she's looking for the Ivy League grad who speaks four languages languages, who plays the cello. <laughs> like, it's, of course you are. Of course you're looking mm-hmm. for that these kind of signals of status in somebody else to select for who you want to mate with. So even though she's not moving forward in a relationship with that person, she still cares about those signals. She's looking for the, the evidence that that value is associated with higher quality genes. That's really what we're doing there. Um, we do exactly the same thing with friendship. You don't want to be friends with just anybody. You don't find value in a friendship with somebody who is not that smart, who is not that funny, who doesn't seem to really understand you, doesn't share your values. You're not going to voluntarily get into an energy exchange with somebody like that. You're being very, very choosy about who you're letting into your life and how much energy you're investing in them, given what you expect to get back from them. So this kind of 
one one single-minded pursuit of status that we have is because we we are aware that status is the bling that we are advertising to these potential trading partners in the world, whether they be romantic or friendship or uh, in in a career sort of context. Um, so absolutely, I think any time that we find ourselves being dragged into some kind of process where we kind of don't understand what's going on, we're we're trying to consolidate our status signals. Yes. So then it would lead into conforming. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, sort of looking back over the past couple of years, there's been this sort of very, very popular question like, you know, why all the conformity? What's going on? Mm -hmm. Um, And that that is the first place to look is is people who are just looking to survive as social animals and and looking to not be in that out group. Because if you're if you're in the out group in a Stone Age context, you're dead. You really are, are not going to if you don't have the protection of the village around you to protect you from the elements, to protect you from predators, to protect you from other members of other outgroups who might like to come take you out of the world. Um, it's it's going to be very, very difficult for you to survive out there on your own. And even if you can survive, you're not going to be able to find a mate. You're not going to be able to reproduce. So we're very dependent on uh, the, the analysis of the other people who are around us and how much they value or don't value us. That is one of, if not the most important social questions for humans who are trying to navigate happiness in the modern world. Yes. We're so driven by the need to belong in groups and in our coalition and with people who matter. It's unbelievable, really. Uh, But it, it just makes so much sense when it's spelled out. Yeah, and we really are not uh, even conscious of this to a large degree, to the degree to which we conform, um, because we're able to kind of rewrite the narrative in real time to justify it because it's it's such a survival imperative that we do it that evolution did not leave this to chance and didn't want us to be to feel a bunch of dissonance about oh i guess i guess i need to conform so i need to put on this mask and you know go along and get along with everybody because that would have been subject to error we would have screwed up we would have let the mask slip we would have made a mistake so what it does instead is it has us drink our own Kool-Aid basically so if you feel that you need to change your opinion or you need to um, you know, rethink your values in accordance with the pressure of a group, because that is the analysis that your, your cost-benefit analysis and your motivational triad have come to, then your little brain is going to find a way to make that make sense. <laughs> and so this is, um, you know, people will really believe that uh, they're doing the right thing, that that they have, yeah, I used to believe something else, but now I believe this because, you know, new evidence and that's that's how it is. And we talk ourselves into this and we we definitely believe it because otherwise it wouldn't be effective. Totally, totally. And, and learning and understanding like pseudo environments or pseudo esteems or how the modern world just didn't exist in the Stone Age. Yeah. So we have yeah. new, completely new problems. Yeah. Yeah. This is probably that mismatch between 
what we're adapted to as animals and what the modern world throws at us is probably responsible for 99% of unhappiness. <laughs> we are living in this constant state of mismatched dissonance with the environment that we adapted to thrive in. So all of our, not only our physical adaptations, but our, our mental and emotional adaptations as well, these are all calibrated to life, you know, a couple hundred thousand years ago. <laughs> they are not calibrated to life right now. And so everything from artificial light to the, the, the way that we live um, completely separate from our coalition and from our village, we, we put ourselves into these little you know, pods and the burbs or our apartments or wherever we live where we don't have intimate, constant connection with multiple generations of people who know us very well. Um, it's no mystery to me that the number one complaint that I hear from people is I feel really disconnected. I don't have any community. I don't have, you know, I just feel really alone in the world. Nobody understands me. Well, of course you do. Like, how could it be otherwise if you're living completely at odds with what you've adapted to, to experience and thrive in. Um, and this goes all the way down to our food environment, to the, our, the way that we, um, de <laughs> the whole debacle of modern dating and the apps to try to find a mate versus this would have been a very collective process with the village weighing in on all of this decision-making for most of human history. So it would have looked much more like a matchmaking scheme. Um, and so we've just, we've really <laughs> well, it's, it's amazing that we're able to put our pants on in the morning and go through life and actually make it, as you and I were discussing before we started recording, maybe the answer is caffeine. Maybe everybody's super caffeinated and that's that's the only way that we're able to function. We're, we're self-medicating with caffeine and alcohol and weed and everything else to kind of try to cope with the fact that we're living in a really alien world. We really are. And and part of, you know, at ISTA, we really honor and respect nature and yeah, getting, yeah. getting our hands back into the soil and the earth and the dirt and to come back to what's natural and organic. Yeah. It's so yeah. powerful. I think it's the probably the best option for people to try to reclaim some of that human sovereignty back. Um, because yeah, that's why I, I moved out here to the boonies um, a couple of years ago from living in the city, in part because of the insanity of the pandemic era, um, but also because of this awareness that, hey, if there's anywhere in life that I can try to claw back my existence from the modern world, it's going to have to start with access to nature. So, um, you know, I, I'm out there every day, rain or shine, digging in the dirt, planting things, going on woods walks, looking for new, new little critters and, and plant life in the forest. Um, and it's, it's just an unbelievable difference in my, in my quality of life. Uh, and so that's, an important, but it's sort of necessary, but not sufficient to do that. I, and, and it's amazing to me that so many people don't even do that. You know, they're not even going outside. They're, they're just going from there, especially as we go into winter here, they go from home into their car to work, to the car, to home. There, there's really maybe on the weekend, once in a while, they might go do something. They might go to a lake or go for a short hike or something, but that's not what we're supposed to be doing. We're, we're, we're supposed to be living in concert with the environment in a really profound and direct and intimate way. Women's cycles are supposed to be aligned with the lunar cycle. You know, it's we're going into a full moon. I started bleeding this morning right on time because that's when you bleed. But in order to do that, you have to 
see the moon. You can't, you, you have to be, you have to be letting your body work in harmony with the signals that are coming from nature. As, as the sun comes up in the morning, you need to be outside, taking that in, adjusting and calibrating your circadian rhythm to that, um, getting, getting that movement, going with the, the rhythm of the seasons, all of this stuff. So we're so far from that. It's ridiculous. It's, it's really tragic. So yeah. And then there's the other, the whole other layer of all of the ways that were captured where, um, you know, I, uh, it's always a tension in my life as, as you have, you have witnessed, like I can take a really long time to reply to things because I literally t- shut things down for hours a day or entire days. There's a couple of days on my calendar where everything's just X'd out. And so I am offline. I am like, my, my phone is off. It is in a cabinet somewhere. My computer is tucked away somewhere. I am outside. I am going to, to every kind of heroic effort I can to detach, to detune, to get out of the matrix. <laughs> and, and what it does is it means I'm like permanently 300 emails behind <laughs> in life because I never, you can never get caught up living like that because everybody else is at this, you know, constant pace. And so it's, it creates its own sort of pressure where I wind up triaging when I come back to the modern environment where it's like, okay, well, this is on fire. So I have to deal with this right now. <laughs> um, and then I'll deal with these other things. But what's the alternative that you don't create that space at all? Like I, I have to, otherwise I'm going to miss my whole life before I've even noticed what's happened. Mm. So there's a cost to, to living a stone age life in the modern world. Yes. Both sides. And it, it seems worth it. <laughs> it really does. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's my sort of general well-being and happiness is, you know, it's, you can't compare it to live to that rat race of being completely, um, uh, change to the, the notification stream. You just, I, I can't live like that. So I would, I would rather have a few, uh, periods during the week of intense stress where I'm trying to catch up with everything and, you know, figure out what I've missed rather than be in that space all the time. Yeah. So good. Wow. So many, so many places to go. Um, <laughs> but let's see, how would you say the field of political science um, conceptualizes or differentiates between, let's say, like a cult and a school of thought in the context of like maybe like an ideological movement? Oh, interesting. I don't know that poli-sci specifically would have much to say on that. Po- political science as a discipline is um, – you know, it kind of just depends who you ask. There are many different approaches and, and people bring in different literatures and different worldviews. And it's kind of, it's one of these umbrella disciplines where there are a bunch of people who are doing little specialty work in a lot of different corners. And so I'm sure there are people who are working on cults and thinking about that question. I'm not super familiar with with what they're thinking or how that how their research is going. So I can't speak to it from a strict political science perspective. Um, but I, I can sort of speak to it from my perspective, which is just that I, I think there is uh, an element to a cult that gets us back to this free will question. There's, there's, a, there's some kind of coerciveness in what we would call a cult um, versus a school of thought, which is something that you're coming to through open-mindedness and, and, uh, you know, always an ability to exit and an ability to exit without additional costs. So sometimes that kind of soft coercion that can show up in something like a cult might not look like 
coercion to, to the outside world, but you've increased the cost of exit so much that you've permanently changed somebody's ability to run a true cost-benefit analysis on, does it make sense to extract myself from this? Or is there something on the other side that there's a cost that I really am not able to or willing to pay? And when that's something like blackmail, as with the Nixium cult, um, or, uh, you know, sort of other, yeah, some kind of compromat on people, then it, then it can be really obvious that, oh, well, of course there's coercion. But I think sometimes it just gets back to this question of status. Like, you know, are you, if, if you've been all wrapped up with some, uh, school of thought slash cult for a long time and you've, you've built a whole community around belonging in that and people expect you to be associated with it and to speak for it. The costs of extraction and departure get very, very high for any given individual because who are you without that ideology? If you're out there exposed to the world, you've, you've lost your family possibly, you've lost your friendships, you've lost your career connections. I think a lot of people who are, um, you know, trying to extract themselves from certain types of orthodox religious groups and, and others can face this sort of situation too. So it's probably a fine line. Um, and, and, you know, where, where you draw that line is on a continuum somewhere, but I generally, the, the, my metric for, is it a cult <laughs> always comes down to coercion. Yeah. Wow. It's, and it, and it could be so subtle. The coercion. Oh, totally. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. Even if it's just at the level of, you know, well, who's, who, who are you without us? You know, there might not be any dramatic big cost and maybe you can easily go into another job, but like, you know, why would you, why would you trade everything that you have here? We're the only ones who understand you, you know, we're the ones who have given you the tools to be the most successful in life. You're going to abandon all of that to just go be a normie out there in the world. Like really? So especially, um, you know, kind of women are, uh, archetypally linked as cult victims for a reason because we are we tend to be more agreeable than men um, and being more agreeable makes us a little more susceptible to that kind of manipulation. Yeah, it's so powerful. Even I mean, you know, I, I'm someone who goes to Burning Man, right? Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> to the festival, and it's like even in the jargon or the language, it's like calling yeah. someone a burner versus like a muggle. Right? right? Who doesn't go right. to Burning Man in a way? Like, and, right. you know, Burning Man only happens once a year. I, I didn't actually go this past year. So there's no. Um, it's a good year not to go. It's a good year <laughs> not to go. My husband went. He had a blast in the mud. Yeah. <laughs> I'm so yeah. glad I didn't glad, go. Glad yeah. yeah. So I'm just curious. Like, all kinds of drama. Would, I guess it's like maybe cult adjacent or cult like, just when like a group of people come together and create their in-group and then create the out-group based on jargon or different, um, you know, practices like dressing up in costumes, for example, or, you know, certain right. music or certain right. ways of being. Yeah. I'm just curious around something like that. Like, I, I guess I don't want to over-intellectualize what's a cult and what's a school, but I'm just always curious to understand, you know, the, the different perspectives perceptions and points of view that we carry. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, we, um, 
Dr. Lila and I just had our, we have a kind of periodic event where I drag him out here to Virginia and, and um, I'm, I'm stuck here because of the dog. The hacking dog in the background doesn't travel well and can't really have a dog sitter. So I'm stuck here. So I bring him here to have an event a couple times a year where we bring community together and we lecture on evolutionary psychology topics and um, do a bunch of Q&A. And this, this time I had like a women's workshop in addition to that. So um, it's, it's something that we're deliberately doing to bring like-minded people together. It's sort of a in-person expansion of what we do with the podcast and what we do with our, the other stuff that we are up to that is all the little screens on the, on the computer. Um, So we really wanted that in-person experience. And, you know, we, we don't have costumes, but we do have language um, and it doesn't quite get to the burner muggle level, but we'll definitely talk about normies, you know, like, oh yeah, well, they're normies. They don't understand. You know, we, we've got our, we know how things really are here in our group. Um, and so are we, are we a cult? Are we in the continuum? It's something I will even joke about on my coaching calls sometimes if I, if I have not talked to somebody before um, and I don't know what they're familiar familiarity is, I'll, you know, I'll kind of ask them a little bit. And if they say, oh yeah, I listen to the podcast and, um, I've, I've definitely am familiar with you guys. I'm like, oh yeah, you're in the cults, you know, but it's, it's a joke, but there's some truth to it because yeah, you, you know, the little pithy sayings, you know, the language that we use you, I don't have to, I'm not in this kind of position where I'm having to convince you to be on the same page with me. You're already there. Um, and so, yeah, I think it is very gray area stuff where, um, is there a cost to somebody leaving that? I certainly don't try to impose that, but that doesn't mean they don't subjectively experience that cost. So, yeah, yeah, so interesting. So then just as a thought experiment, would you call maybe the government a cult or the military <laughs> a cult or the police force, you know, like just any or yeah. academia, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think as as we are defining it, definitely, I think all of those things qualify. Government is is sort of such a multi splendored yeah. beast; it's hard to say, but but for sure, the military or the police and academia, absolutely. I mean, you you are um, having to toe the line pretty precisely to to stay uh, on the right side of. The, the sanctioning policies in, in academic world. And one of the reasons that I left academia, I wasn't, I wasn't proactively canceled, <laughs> but what I, what I anticipated happening was if I continued to pursue my academic interests in the way that I wanted to, that I was heading for cancellation or at least a dramatic sort of isolation within a given department, because you will see certainly in political science and other departments, there are out of the box thinkers who exist in those departments, but they are very isolated. They're very, um, they might have a couple of grad students who come specifically to work with that person, but they're not part of the larger ecosystem of the department. Um, and I just didn't necessarily want that life for myself, at least not at that stage of life. Um, and so, uh, there's a lot of cultishness in academia. Yeah. For, for both the professor level and for the students. Wow. Yeah, Harvard, in fact, the, the, um, there's an organization that assesses free speech on campus and my alma mater just, uh, just was number, we're, we're number one. <laughs> um, and not only was 
Harvard identified as the least free um, in terms of academic speech of any college campus in the United States. But it was it was least free by a mile. I think it was like a standard deviation less free than the next the, the runner-up. Um, so people are feeling, uh, and this was a survey mostly, I think they, they talked to some faculty, but mostly students. Um, people are really feeling like they can't go outside of the lines. They, they have to talk about certain topics in particular ways um, and uh, not bring up certain things at all, or they find themselves outside looking in. Wow. And, and so again, then that all would probably, I imagine, tie back to uh, seeking status, wanting to belong to the coalition, you know, going along to get along. And then almost this culture gets co-created where like no one's sort of happy and everyone's kind of buying <laughs> yeah. and subscribing to this co-created yeah. belonging thing, like a soup. <laughs> yeah. I think in, in the case of academia, a lot of it had to do with funding um, mm. and the sort of incentives that came along with where the money was coming from. And a lot of the money was government money. Um, and the money that was not government money was nonprofit money. And the nonprofit money had strings attached. And so you, over the course of a few generations, you, uh, yeah, you just start to seed uh, a different kind of faculty that uh, has a different kind of worldview that is answering to the masters of their funding. Um, and, you know, I discovered this even with my dissertation research where I had National Science Foundation funding. I had, uh, you know, on-campus funding from the, the Center for the Environment, uh, the Social Science Research Council, like a lot of different places that, that cut me very nice checks to go do my research. But even if it's not spelled out in the terms of, you know, how you're going to spend this money and what it's attached to, academia is this, it, it's a long game. You're building relationships. And so if I took a check from one of these organizations and I sort of uh, went outside of the norms of what was expected from that research in terms of what the tone was and what the... Um, I was particularly working kind of in the climate change space. And so I had to really talk about climate change in a specific way. And if I didn't, I'm not going to get funded from that group again. Um, and so it's not that I've broken a rule, uh, at least not, not a, you know, letter of the law kind of rule, but I've broken the spirit of this, of this exchange that was going on, that was building a relationship over time. And these messages are not lost on anybody. And so over time, even though nobody actually talks about it, really, um, or if they do talk about it, it's in a very oblique kind of shady way, um, you still can profoundly change the culture of a given department or an entire institution just through this kind of soft coercion. And I think that's what's happened um, along with the hyper-feminization of the disciplines. And you know, there's a lot to talk about there too, but yeah. It's so interesting. I know we're almost coming up on time and there's so much I want to ask you. Um, yeah, but just wherever you might feel there's juice and anything you might want to share around any of these topics, but I'm just really thinking about instinct and just, mm. you know, the, the competitive underlying um, nature. Uh, of being alive, of being yeah. in this, you know, wiring, and it may not sound pretty, and mm. most of us may not want to admit it, but there's something so liberating to just spell it out and and you know 
what is it? The red pill, swallow the red pill. Yes. <laughs> it's a very red pill experience. Yes. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It's a, it's a brain breaking experience, but it has been so helpful mm. and so supportive where what it's, what it's really helped me on a personal level is to not hate myself mm. simply, right? It's just like when, when I do something or I say something or I, I act in a way that I may, I may not be proud of. Right. Instead to say like, ah, this is like biology happening or, or group dynamics are at play or, you know, my competitive stuff came out or I'm trying to fawn and be pleasing because I want to be liked by someone and to mm-hmm. not go into like the self deprecating collapse, but instead to say, okay, like what's really happening here and to, yeah. to see the matrix in a yeah. way. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's great. I mean, I think it's, um, this perspective on human behavior that it's not random, that you are always trying to accomplish a goal. So whatever you did, even if it seemed really self-defeating, like procrastination um, or avoidance of some, something that needed to be done, and you're now you're paying the cost of not doing that, there you you were actually optimizing at a level beyond that what seems to be the goal. So it's all about pulling that camera back and interrogating what was the real goal? What was I really trying to achieve here? And then from there, once you've identified what you're trying to achieve, is there some kind of mismatch? Are you trying to accomplish a Stone Age goal that is no longer applicable to the modern world? Or are you trying to accomplish a Stone Age goal that got kind of somehow uh, warped by the modern world? And those things happen all of the time. So when you decide to break your diet and eat the, the pizza instead of the salad, you're trying to achieve, you're, it's not that you're, try, you're, you're like, oh, I just, I, I know what to do. I just can't do it. There's something wrong with me. No, you were an animal who was following strong instincts built by millions of years of evolution to eat the richest food in the environment because if you don't, you're more likely to die. Um, and so the everything, you know, from, from any perspective, any sort of self-defeating behavior or any conflict in your life, um, any uh, repeated pattern of behavior that seems to not make sense to you. There's always a logic to it. There's always a goal to it. it you you are a uh, an animal that is trying to do its best given the information matrix that it's working with. Um, and so it's just a question of, okay, let's pull this apart. Let's identify where we went wrong, <laughs> um, where, where the information got confused or we don't have enough information or um, that the fact that I'm sitting here worried about what uh, Sally said to me in third grade and I can't get it out of my head is because in the Stone Age that would have mattered because she'd still be in your coalition. She would still be in the village. You would What she thought of you would still matter. Um, you can't even remember her last name now. You don't, you know, she's off living her life. So there's all kinds of things that just, there's not this one-to-one relationship with who we, who we were selected to be um, and this environment that we find ourselves in. So that that self-forgiveness that you're talking about is totally key. Um, and it's, again, on this path of understanding why you do what you do. And then is it appropriate to try to do things differently? And if so, how do we go about that? So, yeah. Yes, which ties into if you want to go about this and get direct coaching from Dr. Jen, sure. what's a good way for people to find you? 
Yeah, I do direct one-on-one coaching. I also have virtual groups uh, a couple of times a week where it's kind of group coaching slash group experience, uh, all kinds of different things going on. So all of that is just at my website, which is jenhawk.com. Beautiful. We'll definitely put it in the um, caption of this episode so they could find it. And is there anything else you'd like to share with us before we wrap up at the end? um, I didn't prep you for this, but there's something called quick fire questions just to get to know you a little bit better to have a fun way of wrapping up. (laughs) Oh no, let's do it. Okay. Great. Quick fire. Okay. So if you can right? no, no pressure, maybe three words, five words or less in just a few words, what does freedom mean to you? Oh, that's a big question. <laughs> now I'm feeling the pressure of the rapid fire. Um, freedom, yeah. Freedom is a one-to-one relationship with what you perceive that you were doing in the world. It's it's a it's a it's a your insides and outsides match. Mm, nice. What did you eat for dinner last night? Potatoes. What did I have for? There's been a lot of potatoes. I made like a potato queso kind of thing, which I don't know if you've ever, this is a whole food plant-based, like, you know, sort of ninja trick, Um, but you can make a very convincing like mac and cheese with potato queso. Yum. If you were a piece of furniture, what would you be? (laughs) A treasure chest. (laughs) Yay. (laughs) What's something you've failed at? Ah, what have I failed at? A lot of things. Most recently, what's on my mind, because I'm kind of putting things to bed for the winter outside, is I I have failed to grow a lot of plants that I've tried to grow, Um, mostly because my resident groundhog ate them, but for other reasons too. So I'm 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 always growing and learning as a little farmer. Mm -hmm. What are you reading right now? I am reading, uh, well, one thing I'm reading is Doug sent me the, uh, our book. So this is the draft of our book, um, which uh, I am jumping in with the next chapter. So I'm trying to kind of get myself grounded with what we're up to. So that's the main thing I'm reading. I hope the pre-orders are available because I'm I'm in. <laughs> yeah, the, the only way to pre-order is to get a lifetime membership with our Living Wisdom Library. I have one. Um, so if you have one, then you're on the list. And when when we publish, we're self-publishing. So you will receive it then. Perfect. Okay. So last but not least, what are you currently learning to embody or understand more deeply in your own practice? Hmm. You know, as I was saying before we got on, I just quit caffeine for the first time in like 25 years. Um, And one thing that has happened is my dreams have really changed. Uh, So I've been, I have been trying to uh, work on my lucid dreaming really actively um, with sort of intermittent success. So that's been really exciting. And the whole point of, of lucid dreaming is I, perceive it or as I want to use it as a spiritual practice is to just get greater insight into the truth of reality, right? Isn't that the whole point of things? So that's my that's my main direction right now. Oh, that is so exciting. Thank no, it's you super fun. so much for being here today. It's been such an honor and such a pleasure. And we I really hope to have you back. 
Oh, absolutely. Anytime. We covered a lot of territory. Yes. So, <laughs> I, and I, I'm like, I'm always, I'm like, oh, I think I sort of abandoned that thought halfway and then got onto something else. And so we'll, we'll have to close all those loops at some point. Yes, I would love that. Thank you so, so much. Amazing to awesome. have you here. Yay. No, great to be here. Thanks for listening to the Spiritual Sexual Shamanic Podcast. To find out more about ISTA's retreats, festivals, workshops, or to work with our faculty, see our website, ista.life, or find us on Facebook at www.ista.life, or on Instagram at istacommunity.life.